Hey everyone, and welcome back to Therapists in the Wild. For those of you who are new here, we are a podcast about applying DBT skills in all of our daily lives. Today, we're so excited to be joined by a very special guest, Chris Jones, who is here to tell us about his experiences living with BPD, viewing DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, and very exciting, um, advocating for others who meet criteria for BPD. And Molly and I are particularly excited about this because we have so much to learn about this area. Um, so we we're right along here with you asking questions and, and, you know, exploring new territory. Yes, we were super excited to be talking to Chris today. And Chris is one of our favorite people to follow on social media. Um, so everybody go follow him at CJ on the borderline. Did I get that right? That's right. <laughs> okay, cool. One of the things, Chris, that really drew us into your page and made us want to invite you on to be a guest here today is your transparency about your own journey with BPD and just kind of how open and honest you are about the experiences that you've had since being diagnosed. In addition to really like your, your passion, it seems, for supporting other people who struggle with BPD or kind of other mental health issues more generally, and you know your desire to advocate for them, to reduce stigma around mental health. Um, so we're just super excited to talk to you about all of that and more. We love following him and also he posts incredible nature pictures. So <laughs> that's another <laughs> great thing about his page. And very DPT consistent, it's right? It's a coping mechanism in itself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It makes us think of some of the, you know, ABC please skills, right? Um, emotion regulation, distress tolerance skills. So we can, we can get into that too. Um, we're so excited to have you here, Chris. We really appreciate your time. And we wanted to give you the floor and just ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself um, and particularly how you got to be a mental health advocate. Well, first, thank you very much for having me on. It's an honor. And uh, yeah, I was, uh, I guess I'm, I was diagnosed with BPD in 2019. It's been almost exactly two years now and uh, I guess I started advocating the thing for me was um, getting the diagnosis was really was really weird quite late I was I was 28 when I got the diagnosis mm. after years and years and years of struggling with it and um, to finally get some answers was a bit of a relief but also sort of posed quite a, quite a lot of questions about things that had happened in my childhood and things like that so um but the thing for me when I ironically it was one of the only illnesses I hadn't really um sort of looked into or researched uh for the book that I've written mm. and when I did um I mean I've always been open about things like depression and anxiety anyway but the thing that got me was when I googled <laughs> uh BPD some of the things that it came up with um there were books and blogs about how to manage people with BPD rather than how to manage BPD wow. um, and that was a bit of an eye-opener for me I was like oh no I can't I like I need to do something um, which is why I started talking so openly about the illness because I feel like it's quite misunderstood and obviously the problem is there's so many different criteria as well um, it's very complex yeah yeah. So it, it sounds like you started the advocacy piece right as you were diagnosed yourself, which is really interesting. I mean, do you think in some ways that was a way of helping you, you know, understand your own diagnosis better? Yeah. Like how did those two, you know? I think yeah. so. I mean, like I said, I talked openly about my struggles with mental health problems anyway mm -hmm. um but then the getting the diagnosis I was very open about it straight away and yeah I feel like that was something that that helped me as well um but the idea being that it was to try and help others it's quite a scary place to be when you get the diagnosis yeah, yeah. Uh, try and help other people understand it then you know my loved ones didn't really know how to how to help so sort of putting it out there for not just my friends and family but other people as well mm -hmm. 
is that um that's so cool by the way that you're writing a book um yeah we want to hear about that later (laughs) yeah yeah I'm curious like what like is that is the book kind of intended to help raise awareness about what BPD is like for people that are living with it as well as like you just mentioned like for loved ones to learn more about how to support somebody with BPD yeah that's exactly what it was it started I started writing the book before I was actually diagnosed so the book was about 25,000 words focused predominantly around depression and anxiety and uh, once I received the the diagnosis two years ago I decided that I wanted to change a lot about the book so I'd, I'd got this platform already that mm-hmm. I've written so much about <clears throat> I took a load of stuff out and put a load more stuff in so I think it's about 35,000 words but I'm still adding to it as things crop up I've recently been through a really difficult um, patch myself so it's I'm still learning and I'm still adding to it as I go along wow yeah yeah you know what one thing you said about um about when you first received the diagnosis you started googling you saw so many blog posts and books about how to quote-unquote manage someone with BPD rather than how to manage it yourself I mean I'm not surprised and I'm sorry that that was your experience it kind of it kind of brings up the question for me of pros and cons of diagnosis itself, right? Of of this particular diagnosis, because you know, in our experience, it's a dialectic. You know, people tend to feel validated um, by having this set of criteria that other people around them also meet. Obviously, there's DBT. There's a treatment for this particular diagnosis. Um, so that can feel very helpful and validating. And then on the other side of it, there is, as you mentioned, all this stuff out there about, um, you know, managing, quote unquote, managing someone and all of the stigma that's attached. So, you know, I just love to hear to hear your from your perspective, um, you know, the sort of both sides of that dialectic, the the pros and cons of the diagnosis. I think. Um... Cons, certainly the big thing um, is the stigma that's attached to it um, because of certain behaviours um, that, you know, and traits that the diagnosis sort of comes with. Um, so the stigma is, I would say, probably one of the more difficult things and certainly one of the, one of the cons. But then the pro, the biggest pro for me of getting the diagnosis was, was getting some answers if that makes sense so mm-hmm. uh, for years when I was diagnosed with depression when I was 15 um, but I always knew there was there was something more to it mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't just the anxiety as well and, and everything and uh, yeah I, when I got the diagnosis you know it was, it was actually quite a relief that there was some answers and an explanation as to why I sort of why I was the way that I was with certain things, and um, obviously that then provided the framework for the for the recovery, which was the DBT and uh, medications and things like that. Which obviously you know we know are not as effective as, as DBT, but mm-hmm. yeah, it was um, it was it was life changing, but in a really good way, I would say. It sounds like it was really validating for you to be able to get that diagnosis to kind of like finally get some answers and know that there is an explanation or there's like some way to understand yourself a little bit better. And yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was certainly validating. And then, like I said, it was just getting, getting those answers sort of in my head thinking right okay so this is why you know I act like this or behave like this or done this whatever it might be um for example it sort of explained a lot about my traditionally sort of reckless and impulsive behavior and problems with relationships and things like that the, the mood swings and, and things like that so mm-hmm. um yeah I know it was good to know that it, it was that, that there was there was some, there was something there all along, and then now I could uh, I could finally work on it. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about why it took you so long to get the accurate diagnosis? Because I and the reason I'm asking is because I know it's something that a lot of people 
face, um, you know, in our, in our mental health system in the U.S. and I'm sure, you know, in, in the U.K. and, and other countries as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I saw somewhere that in the UK, um, it's virtually impossible to be diagnosed with a personality disorder under the age of 18. Um, I don't know what it's like everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, sort of get maybe misdiagnosed. I see sort of depression and anxiety as kind of like part of the parcel of the, the bigger picture, of, which is BPD. So I think a lot of people get misdiagnosed when they're younger because I think the symptoms start to show with BPD, sort of like early, you know, in your teens and things like that. So um, I think that's probably. So actually providers aren't allowed to give a personality disorder diagnosis according to the DSM until someone turns 18. And I think that there are a lot of sensible reasons for that. And as you're saying, potentially some disadvantages. So you feel like maybe some providers were thinking, oh, maybe a BPD diagnosis might be accurate, but they were hesitant to provide it because you weren't 18. Yeah, quite possibly. But at the time when I got the diagnosis of depression, I was in a a really bad place Mm -hmm. um, with low mood. So it was... I guess they just slapped a label on it and said, there you go, that's, that takes some tablets. And uh, that's, that's how it went for, for years. And uh, naturally, I was, I, always, I always have been quite a high-functioning person. So um, it, I was always working and things like that. It, like work and keeping me busy and stuff kept me relatively sort of stable. And over the years, it was just on and off with medication. And then... Eventually, yeah, I just had a total breakdown by uh, the end of 2018. And then that subsequently led, led to the, uh, the diagnosis in 2019. Mm. Um, so it, it came as a complete surprise, to be honest, because um, I was always under care services, mental health care services for basic things, you know, counselling and, and therapy for, for years. So it sort of just got escalated from there and then... Uh, one of the therapists that I was working with suggested BPD, UPD, um, as it's sort of more commonly known as here now, and um, put me in touch with the psychologist and then went from there. A psychiatrist gave me the diagnosis. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you say, um, I heard you say EUPD, which is Emotionally Unstable Personality Disorder. Yeah. In the US, um, I haven't heard that. I actually learned that term for the first time on social media, um, following people who lived in other countries who who were experiencing BPD and EUPD. Um, can you tell us, like, your thoughts on the the like what you prefer between BPD and EUPD, and kind of how you think about those two different labels? Yeah, I I, I think well. I- from what I gather, the reason they, they've sort of decided to refer to it more commonly now is EUPD is emotionally unstable. Is it, it sort of um, describes the condition um, a little bit better than, than borderline. Yeah. From what I know, um, I, I, I refer to it as BPD generally. Um, but I know a lot of people, particularly healthcare um, specialists here, tend to prefer to use the term EUPD. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's, I, I, I know in a, like in America and places like that, I speak to a lot of, uh, a lot of you guys over the pond and, uh, <laughs> everyone just refers to it as BPD. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I do, I, when I've opened up to it about, about it to people, um, who don't know or don't understand that I set up borderline personality disorder, they said to me, you know, board, board on the board, borderline of what? What's, where, what do you mean? So I've said, well, okay, it's, they call it emotionally unstable personalities. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, I know what you're saying stuff. about how it's a little bit more behaviorally specific, I guess. I mean, I, I think borderline, my, my understanding of the term borderline personality disorder is that it is a sort of antiquated way of describing, um, you know, classifications of personality that, that um comes from, you know, older psychiatrists and psychologists, um, yeah. you know, 
with theoretical orientations very, very different to, to DBT for sure. And so um, I, I agree with you that emotionally unstable kind of gets to one of the main criteria, I guess, of what we call BPD, which is the, um, you know, the frequent sort of changes in mood and, and it maybe like more accurately describes kind of what you might go through on a daily basis. And so in that way, it could be, could be more helpful. Yeah, it's, it's, it, I'm just talking through it myself because I'm, I'm thinking about this. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, well, when I, when, I, when I got the diagnosis, it was a UPD. It was, mm -hmm. that's, that's what I was actually diagnosed with emotionally unstable personality disorder. And obviously I did my homework and I was like, oh, okay, it's this, it is, it's this. Um, but yeah, I think they just refer to it that now. I think they, they, it just, it, it gives a bit, bit of a better understanding as to what the actual, what the disorder is. Mm -hmm. And as we're kind of talking about like what the disorder is, we've talked a little bit about that on our podcast, but not with somebody who actually experiences it themselves. So I know it's kind of hard to like sum up these experiences, but could you share a little bit about like what it's been like for you to have BPD or EUPD and like what that experience is like for you on a daily, weekly, monthly, you know, basis? Yeah, it, it's different now. It's certainly different now to, to uh, like since I got the diagnosis two years ago. Um, that was great to hear, by the way. <laughs> So again, sorry. That, that's great to hear that, you know, that getting the diagnosis has changed things. And I want to hear about that. And yeah, please, uh, please continue. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. No, it's it, um, previously prior to that, you know, I didn't really know what was wrong with me, why I behaved the way I did, why I did the things I did. And, and I didn't really understand it. Um, and because I didn't know what was essentially what was wrong, I sort of, I don't know, I let it. I let it sort of eat away at me and I didn't really do anything to sort of prevent things that I, that I did. Um, but since getting the diagnosis and, and working really hard to try and um, manage the condition myself, um, quality of life improved massively. And uh, I think my, day, my daily life now is so much more stable I can control my emotions a little bit better and, and stuff. But day to day, yeah, you don't know what you're going to get. Though. That's the only thing. It's, um, so it can be a bit hit and miss, but it, it affects pretty much every aspect of my life and always has done. Not so much anymore. Um, it's not as bad um, as it was sort of, like I said before, when, when I was younger. Um, but... Um, yeah, every day is a bit of a struggle in some respects because it, it affects every part of uh, my life. So one thing that I particularly have always struggled with and do still struggle with is, is interpersonal relationships. And it's on my part usually because I'm misinterpreting signals from people and jumping to conclusions and paranoia and things like that. So that's something that I struggle with and, and that is still a bit of a struggle to this day, to be, to be fair. But... Um, you know, other, other other things sometimes, you know, I people talk about uh, the anger as well, explosive anger is, is, is a symptom that I've struggled with quite a lot um, and sort of blacking out, but it could be over the smallest of things. I can go through something traumatic and I'm sort of numb to it almost, yet, you know, I could knock a mug off the kitchen counter and it will send me into a complete spiral and um yeah it, it's just now i've got you know more tools to be able to to deal with those things as and when they do happen so um yeah it, it changed my life for the better um I'm, I'm grateful but it's um getting it so late on just uh you know it posed a lot of questions about my relationships with other people family and things like that when i was younger it made me question a lot of um made me question a lot about what had happened previously in my life, but ultimately I can't go back and change the past. I've got to just work on it in the present. So that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, I can tell you've been through DBT and the way you just uh, spoke. I mean, I'm hearing so much radical acceptance. I'm hearing so much mindfulness, really, like what you just described about 
knocking a mug off of the counter and anger rising up really quickly and then having urges. I mean, it's not, I, I really can, it requires mindfulness to know that, right. To, to kind of be aware yeah. of what's going on. Um, I mean, tell us, tell us, I guess, about, about your experience in DBT and how you continue to apply skills. I, I assume you're not currently going through DBT. Am I, is that correct? No, not currently. No, no, I, I did, I did six months, um, of, of DBT back in 2019. Uh, I'm currently, um, I've currently been referred for, um, a further therapy type of therapy called life skills, which is slightly different to, to DBT, but very, very similar application, but, um, yeah, I'm not going through it at the moment. Um, it, we did, it was with a psychologist once a week, six months. Uh, but really focusing on things that I struggled with. Uh, mm. You mentioned about radical acceptance um, was a big thing for me that um, that helped just with my mindset about things that had happened. And it was just like, you know, it is what it is kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I know it was really, uh, we did a lot of work on mindfulness. Um, it, like I said, the emotion regulation, um, things like that, which was the, to manage the very specific issues that, that I was dealing with um, as a result of the diagnosis. So it was uh, intense. It's not, it's not easy. Um, and the people that I've spoke to that, that um, have been through it have said the same thing. You know, it's not, it, it's, uh, it's difficult because you've got to, you've really got to put the work in with DBT. It's not like normal talking therapy or psychotherapy. It's not, you've actually got to do the work. And I say this to people all the time that are going through it or, or being referred for it. It's, it's just like, it's, it's really, really hard work. But if you want to make the change, you've got to put the work in. It is difficult and it will stir up a lot of emotion and a lot of issues potentially from your past and things like that. But um, it's, yeah, you've got to fully embrace it. So it was difficult. It was tricky. You know, there was, there were sessions where I left feeling on top of the world and then there were sessions where I left thinking I feel worse than I did before I went in mm-hmm. um, but ultimately it's it's a, it's a long-term process isn't it so in the in the end it uh, it was all for the best it's it's interesting hearing you talk about your experiences with dbt and I'm hearing also like that dialectic of ex- the main dialectic in dbt of acceptance and change and how for you it sounds like accepting your diagnosis and accepting some of the things that have happened in your past helped you actually begin to work toward the process of changing what you do have control over in the present and moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Like I said, it was, yeah, it was really, it was, it was difficult, but I knew from gem, well, from past relationships generally that there was something not quite right with how I handled certain situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, except, accepting that it is what it is. And, and that was that, like, it's like I've, I've talked about acceptance a lot about how that really is sort of the first step in your recovery is it, this is, you know, what it is, but you know, if you want to get better, then you've got to, you've got to accept it, move on and put the work in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that brings up for me, I, I, we sometimes will hear from family members or loved ones of people who either have received a BPD diagnosis or maybe the relative thinks that a BPD diagnosis or UPD diagnosis might be, um, you know, might be accurate in what's needed and that the person would really benefit from dialectical behavior therapy. And maybe the person is unwilling at that time to go in for an evaluation or to begin DBT for all sorts of really understandable reasons. And on the other side of the dialectic, it makes sense that the relative would want the person, you know, would want their loved one to get help. And I'm wondering if you have any, if you have any thoughts on, you know, what it takes to be ready for DBT, you know, how you, can you kind of convince someone to go in for treatment 
Um, what if the person isn't willing to, you know, have you, have you come across this in yourself and in your work with other people? Yeah, I've, got, I've certainly come across it with other people. Um, not, not so much with myself. I, I don't really know why I was so receptive to it. You've, you've got to want it yourself. I think, I don't think you can be, it's so difficult and so intense that you really got to, you've got to need to do it yourself um but that's why i'm so open on what i talk about it as being such a good thing and how life-changing it was for me because it really it was it really was it was um i wouldn't be where i am today without that and uh, see it was it was an odd because i was i was pretty much offered it straight away as said before, I was even officially diagnosed. Um, there was no point. I threw myself into it, and I knew I needed to for my, my family and, and my friends and what have you. But I don't think you could really be sort of pushed to do it if you don't want to do it, because oh, it, as you know, it's 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 skills based sort of therapy, and it's working on changing behaviours and things like that. So if you, if you if you're not invested in it, it it is a complete waste of time yeah in my opinion <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that's probably helpful for people to hear you know that like doing dbt at the right time there's something to be said for timing right like and if you're in a place in your life where you have the you know the ability to commit to sticking it out despite some of the challenges that are going to come up inevitably through doing the treatment and doing the work, like you said, like what it might stir up and some of the difficulties of like putting that work in, cause it is hard work um, that, you know, it just kind of, it's, it's something that you, it sounds like you're kind of saying like, you can't really convince somebody to do something they don't really want to do. Yeah, it, pretty much. But um, I like to think that, you know, the end result for me was so, so life-changing when I talk about it to other people, like it is, like it is worth doing. Can't yeah. convince somebody to do something they don't want to do, but I can tell them that it's worth doing. Right. Yeah. If yeah. they want to. But it, like I said, it's a skills-based therapy. And if you don't, if you're not prepared to, to actually try and make the change, then it's, I, I, I don't think it's effective at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I was curious about with your experiences, you said you went through it in 2019. So it's been a couple years. How do you feel like you've continued to kind of incorporate DBT into your life even now? Like, I think that's sometimes a concern that we hear from people of like, am I going to forget all the skills? Am I going to like, you know, how am I going to remember? There's so many acronyms. How am I going to remember all this stuff? Yeah. And Keep and it. particularly, yeah, particularly in, in moments of extreme distress, like, I mean, Molly and I, you know, we work with people who are going through DBT, right? And so we always say it's like learning a new language and we're with them in the learning phase, you know? And so it, it can be and is extremely overwhelming in those, you know, level 100 um, extreme intense emotion moments to remember to use tip or remember to, um, you know, use improve the moment or whatever it is. And we don't often, yeah, we don't often get to talk to people who are kind of in that post DBT phase and trying to remember to speak the language once they've already learned it. So would, would love to hear how you, your advice for people who, who are. Yeah. I think for me, the, the, it was, it's not so much, it's not something that I, I, consciously think of so i don't know if it's just that it's it's buried in there somewhere and yeah. it's more of like a subconscious thing so like i tend to be more proactive instead of reactive now is the main is the main difference um but mm. that's so cool can you give an example of how you're more proactive than reactive uh well just trying with certain things, depending on what it is, try not to put myself in a situation that I know will not be good for my mental health, mm. rather than doing something anyway for the sake of it and then regretting it later. Um, but that, that could be dang, that, that's, that could be, that comes into all sort of different aspects of, of life, I guess. I mean, I used to struggle a lot with um, 
drink and drugs. So that was something that I knew that I had to work on as a separate thing as well. Yeah. The, the two obviously don't go very well together hand in hand, but I don't I don't tend to think you like you said about like the acronyms and things like that. They don't they don't come to mind. I think once you've learned it and it's like speaking a second language, I think it's more of a subconscious process. Hmm. Um so for me, I don't the only so you know sometimes like the crisis survival tips are, are you know trying to remember some of those when I'm in a crisis mode um that helps but generally it's like it's just stuck in there I don't actively try and think it's 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 just I've spent all that time working so hard to change the way that I think and, and did things that it's almost become like second nature like learning a second language it's just it's just sort of there now um, wow I don't really know how else to explain it. It sounds a bit crazy, but it's, uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's not something that I really think about anymore. Um, that is so encouraging. Like, I want, <laughs> I want to tell everyone who's starting DBT that story because, I mean, I think that it's so hard when, as we're using this language analogy, it's so hard in the beginning to ever think that you're going to get there. Um, where yeah. it kind of becomes second nature that's that is really encouraging to hear yeah and, and i do I, I, this is why I, I i love talking about it so openly with people who are going through it or you know i know people that have just been diagnosed and and they don't know what's ahead for them and you know it can be a really daunting place to be but but yeah once you've well, i think once you've done the work you've, you've changed the way that you, your brain works uh, and reacts to things so like i said yeah just second nature eventually Mm -hmm. It seems like you got to this place, like through a lot of practice when you were actually in DBT, like just probably like repetition practice. Did you ever like, like, how did you learn the skills? Did you, was there a group component to the DBT program that you did, or did you just kind of work in in individual therapy? Individual ones, uh, one-on-one with a psychologist. And um, it was just me then putting the work in, in my own time after Mm -hmm. that taking everything away from the session and then actually putting it into practice um the one thing that i that i did a lot of work on particularly was the mindfulness and it helped me with the the rage the mood swings and things like that but it was stuff that i was taking away from the session and it was almost like homework it was like okay right come in the next session and it was like okay so tell me how you implemented that what have you done to you know change this that and the other and yeah, it was it was a it was a lot of work, but I I, I mean I don't think I realised at the time just how invested I was into it, but I, I genuinely did just want to change. Well, I just want to change, um, from instead of torturing myself constantly. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was a lot of homework, basically. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like in DVT, how they have, um, you have your life worth living goal, right? Like you have the reason why you're basically doing it and having that in your mind is helpful to keep you engaged and keep you, you know, practicing, doing the homework. Like it's, you know, putting in that time that you're describing, it seems like for you, you were like, I don't want to have to feel the way that I feel, or I don't want to have to respond to things in the way that I have. I want to learn new ways to respond to my environment and things that come up and so that was kind of like what motivated you to stay engaged and keep practicing yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah i'm sure that people listening are hearing how um much dbt has changed your life you know how how much you sort of took to it and I understand why you're an advocate, right, um, for DBT, for mental health awareness in general. And I mean, you know, we, we mentioned in the beginning that Molly and I are new to the social media world of mental health advocacy. And I mean, there are so many things about it that seem so helpful. I mean, particularly, we talk a lot in this podcast about access as an issue, you know, as a huge barrier. Um, you getting the right treatment. I mean, I'm sure it's true in the UK. It's certainly true here in the US that a lot of people both can't get the right diagnosis. And even if they do get the right diagnosis, it can be so hard to afford to 
find the right DBT provider. I mean, there's just, as I'm sure you are well aware, there are so, so many issues and that's what inspired us to make the podcast. And I'm sure what inspired you to, you know, do the work that you're doing. So, I mean, I think that's all great. Uh, we, we've, you know, in the way that we've dipped our toe into the social media world, we've already seen so many helpful things about it. You know, we've also seen um, lots of skill skills reminders. We've seen a lot of things that we think look really true to DBT. We've seen some other things that maybe aren't quite DBT consistent. And, you know, there are pros and cons of that. So we, we just wanted to have a conversation with you about what you see as, you know, having been through DBT yourself as some of the pros and cons of all of this, like spread of information via social media in a way that's kind of unfiltered. I well personally I think it's I think it's I think it's a really good thing um there was it's different as well so obviously like here in the UK all of the treatment that I had and that anyone has is free we have the NHS wow. and everything is everything's free Ooh, um yeah, prescription prescription medications on but you know, all everything that I had, the access to all that, all that one-on-one time with a psychologist was it didn't doesn't cost me anything. But that's another problem because in places like America, where healthcare is and can be expensive, I think that was another reason that kind of I, I probably I probably speak to more people in the states than I do in the UK. So hmm. seeing how difficult it is for people to not be able to get access to it as easily over there it was another reason that sort of made me feel like well, I can need to share more about this and do more and and stuff like that but um the social media I mean I I must be honest I'm not a huge fan of social media just generally I think it can be quite toxic it can be quite egotistical it could be quite uh, it's not really a thing I only use Instagram just mm. purely as a platform to be able to talk about to talk about mental uh, mental health but you know it could be a bit of a minefield out there with the information and there's a lot of people that are you know spreading stuff that isn't particularly helpful there's a lot of self-diagnosis on there and stuff like that but generally it's pretty good in the community especially the bpd community um is absolutely fantastic everyone's really i don't know how to explain it it's really like quite close knit, and um, we we started something actually on Instagram because um, somebody from I think from Norway had sent me a message to say that she had clicked the BPD hashtag on Instagram to look for some posts for some information, some help, some advice, and had noticed that Instagram had blocked the hashtag BPD. Uh, and I think oh, the message nice. that came up was something along the lines of. Um, Basically, uh, we've blocked this hashtag because it can lead to self-injury and even death. So we started oh a movement, me and a couple of other people in the in the States and in the UK, um, where we basically started a petition to get the hashtag unbanned so that people could access it. Um, there were other variants of the hashtag that you could still use. Uh, but it was completely shadow banned. You couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't see any of the information, any of the posts. And if you'd posted something and used the hashtag BPD, Instagram would censor it, would block you. It was a, it was a, yeah. And it, it, wow. it sort of, I don't know. Apparently, it had been going on for a while, and then all of a sudden, it, they, 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 they just stopped everything. So we signed, we started a petition. We got loads of people involved. Um, we started using our own hashtag, uh, and this thing grew and grew and grew. And eventually, Instagram have allowed access to the hashtag again. Wow! Um, so that was that was really amazing because everyone came together from all around the world to sort of jump in on on this and and were sharing their own stories. And it was absolutely it was it was inspiring. It was amazing. So, uh, but it made real change as well. We were really pleased with what we achieved. Wow! I mean. I feel like we could talk about that for the next hour. I mean, I, I think, you know, it makes me think like, as you said, it's a dialectic. There's a lot about social media that um, exacerbates mental health concerns, right? For, for very understandable reasons. And in terms of fighting stigma, it sounds like um, 
someone 20 years ago, you know, living with BPD and maybe hearing from someone casually, oh, you know, that's a diagnosis that if you talk about it with other people is going to lead to harmful behavior, you know, whatever. There was some like in-person version of, of what happened on Instagram. I could see it being such a lonely experience. And so um, getting yeah. to connect with people all over the world to literally fight the stigma that Instagram was um, putting on you is is pretty amazing. Yeah, it was fantastic. We we were sharing posts and, and stories on Instagram and tagging other people so that though the people that saw it could see other people. So then we started this like follow loop type thing where everyone then I'd share all of my favorite accounts of people that spoke about BPD and then they did the same. So it gave a lot of people. So I get messages every day from people that have just newly been diagnosed or they know someone that's just been diagnosed and they want to support them. So we set up this like sort of follow loop where we just gave access to, for these kind of people, all these Instagram accounts that had actually genuine, genuinely helpful and informative stuff on there that they could like relate to um so it was really good for not just for the community engagement but for the people that were kind of new to it they sort of had somewhere to look and we kind of signposted almost you know this this is helpful this is helpful and uh yeah it was really good like so you still get a you know a bit of um you know not not everyone's quite as um, receptive to it but on the whole generally um yeah it was really good really good Wow. It really sounds like social media is a place that you notice a sense of community with other people experiencing similar difficulties. The thing with social media is, it, I guess, it's people use it. People could people use it incorrectly based on what their intention is with it. So mm -hmm. some people just want a quick, you know, a quick hit of serotonin by getting a post and a picture and getting a few likes and stuff. But it's it's. A complex relationship with it isn't it because it can be a really really good thing and it can be a really bad thing like my parents use facebook and they think it's the best thing in the world <laughs> but <laughs> my, my dad got in touch with um, uh, people that he was he served in the in, in the british army and he found people through there that he hadn't been able to make contact with for you know 25 yeah. 30 years um but it just depends what your intention with it is isn't it i think that's ultimately what it boils down to but um yeah it's um it, it is a, it's a it's a tool to be used carefully i think yeah. social media and, and so chris i mean when when you say you talk to people in the u.s all the time you talk to people who have been newly diagnosed is that all through messaging on instagram like yeah. how do you yeah. have time for all of this and i think <laughs> on top of it you have a full, you have a job i mean <laughs> No, I don't have time for it. Uh, is is the answer? But um, I do sometimes. I have to just have a whole day work and sort of sit down and just just go through all the messages. I try and reply to everyone, but it, you know it can take it can take some time. Wow. Um, but yeah, but like I said, like it can be a lonely place, and especially if you've just been newly diagnosed, it's it's quite um, it's quite scary. So yeah, it would. Um, no, so if anyone has sent me a message and I haven't replied, I will <laughs> eventually. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's, it sounds like this is a real passion project for you and a real way. I mean, it's, it, it is pretty, it is pretty amazing. As you said, to use social media in this way, it sounds like you're, you know, it's not, it's not your day job, right? You're doing this purely to, purely to connect and make people feel less alone. Yeah, that's exa exactly what it is. And that's the whole purpose uh, of the book that I've written as well and, and whatnot. So, yeah, it's um, it's that it's purely that we, I don't have a like a private Instagram account or anything like that. It's all, it's all public and, and, you know, I don't have Facebook or anything like that. So it is there for one purpose and one purpose only, really. So, yeah. Speaking of creating content to help people feel less alone and share accurate and helpful information can you tell us a little bit about the book that you've been writing it started you know as a a bit of a coping mechanism for me so one of the things that helped me um when i was struggling to make sense of my emotions was to write it down so it started as literally like a journal 
Mm. Um, and it would be daily entries, weekly entries, where it would be, you know, how trying to write down what I felt like I was going through in my head. So I couldn't, you know, before I had the the skills to be able to manage my emotions properly, it was it was uh, it was just a little tool that I could use to try and make sense of what was going on in my head. I felt like if I could write it down and visually see it, it, it would help. And then that, it just grew from there. And the next thing I knew, I'd got, I'd written about, well, I don't know, I'd written a lot. And then if somebody said to me, you know, if you thought about putting it into a book and actually sharing your experiences, you know, in a, in a book format. Um, and before that point, I hadn't really thought about it. So the next thing I, typed everything up from what was handwritten um and there was about ten thousand words and then i just carried on <laughs> just didn't stop so um wow but yeah it was a it was a it was a it was incredibly important for me as a as a tool to use to to help me identify um my emotions and mm-hmm. how i was how i was feeling so um that was that was probably the biggest thing that that helped me on the whole as a a sort of self-help thing, if you know what I mean. That's so interesting, like the link between mindfulness and writing, how if you're feeling something, I know for me, like sometimes when I'm feeling something, I don't know exactly what I'm feeling, but I know it's not good sometimes. Um, But then if you actually take the time to like write it down, it helps you understand why I'm, what am I feeling? First of all, like, how can I name the emotion? Why am I feeling this way? Like what's really going on? And it seems like the book has served a similar function for you to help you increase your mindfulness around how you're feeling and some of the experiences that you have. Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely does. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, <clears throat> to try and sort of encourage other people. I mean, it, 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 I'm not saying it's for everyone. Everyone's going to find things that work for them um, differently. In a way, it might not be something that works for one person, but but does for another. But at the end of the book, I've actually, there's, there's about, 10 or 12 blank pages or that there will be eventually um where it's just to basically just to try and prompt somebody to just put pen to paper and just start writing and see if it helps so um yeah i think it's a good way to to try and make sense of things so cool i love that as a mindfulness practice um i've actually been in in some groups that i've been leading we've been practicing diet uh, increasing dialectical thinking through journaling. And so we'll kind of, the instructions will be to journal about um, sort of opposing thoughts or feelings that are going on inside mm. of us at that moment. And it has been, I think, the most effective way that I practice dialectical thinking. Um, and yeah. You know, the other day I wrote down, I think like, I'm both bored and excited. And just yeah. <laughs> writing that down, <laughs> I mean, that's a confusing way to feel. And just writing it down made me look at the page and go, okay, yeah, both of those things can be true at the same time. It can be, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So speaking of DBT skills, uh, we had a little bit of a game plan for the end of this episode if we want to transition into that. Yeah. Uh, So we were thinking we could ask you your favorite DBT skills and share ours too for different situations that people may find themselves in, um, that we may find ourselves in. So we could start with, which one do we want to start with, Liza? What do you think? Let's start with um, intrusive negative thoughts about yourself. So you're just kind of minding your own business and all of a sudden you get hit with intrusive thoughts that are kind of that negative self-talk that we've all yeah you know, so that is that's something that I, that I I still do struggle with quite a lot actually hmm. um but you know it's difficult because like I said I don't I don't feel like I sort of actively use the tools as such anymore for me it's more of like a total mindset change hmm. um but still with those negative thoughts I don't know I suppose in my mind, I kind of do it's like an like it's like an opposite action type thing. So I'll, I'll try and reinforce something positive about myself mm. immediately after, if that makes sense. I love that. So kind of like self validating. So kind of using opposite action to self validate, basically. Yeah. 
Oh, I mm-hmm. love that. Cool. I like yeah. that a lot. I feel like for me with this one, and this is something I struggle with too, like having those like negative thoughts about yourself just pop in when you don't want them to. Um, and usually at pretty inconvenient times also, like when you're in the middle of trying to do something that matters to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, <no> <laughs> Uh, but I find that mindfulness is helpful. Like for me, just recognizing like, oh, I'm having a thought about myself that I'm not good at X or whatever. And it's like, just recognizing that that's a thought that I'm having. And that doesn't mean it's true. It's just a thought that's passing through my head and being able to observe that for me is really helpful. It almost like gives me a little bit of distance or space from the thought that I'm having. Yeah, there's, um, I, one of the things that I, I liked about the mindfulness was no, the, the noticing thoughts, the passing thoughts was like being sat um, at a train station and watching the trains come in and then letting them leave and think that's yes. how you do it anyway. You let the thoughts come in and you notice them there and just sort of let them go. But I suppose the other thing, because with BPD as well, with it being, you know, one aspect of it can be quite um, like impulsiveness is quite a, quite an issue. So sometimes I have acted on, like urges as well so it's not just the thought you get the urges as well but it's similar to like urge surfing and it's kind of just like just trying to ride that wave out and 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 see because my emotions change so much that I'll I'll be I know that give it in half an hour's time I could be absolutely fine again anyway so um yeah urge surfing I suppose is like another one for impulsive yes. yeah for sort of impulsive urges I yep yeah. that's so helpful and it, you're right it, it's a form of mindfulness right it's just sort of noticing noticing the urge coming in like a wave and then noticing it going out yeah so helpful and just being able to tolerate tolerate the feeling too like I think it is a mindfulness skill but it also requires some distress tolerance probably to be able to like yeah. allow yourself to experience the feeling without doing anything to try to change it or get rid of it necessarily, just allowing it to pass. Yeah. It can be uncomfortable. It, it can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think like one of the things, we've done an episode on urge surfing and we love that skill. And one of the things about it is that like using that approach actually allows it to pass faster than if you try to get rid of it, um, kind of uh, ironically. So. Yeah. And, and I love what you said too. Um, I love how you, how you put in the personal experience of I've been through this before and I know that in half an hour, it may be totally different. And so, you know, having that knowledge in the moment to say to myself, okay, this is temp, this is fleeting, you know, this is temporary. Yeah. This is temporary. Um, Yep. And having the lived experience to know that, right? I think that's that's so helpful for listeners. Yeah, definitely. What about um, when you're feeling kind of down and depressed and maybe having one of those days where like, it's tough to respond to people's texts, tough to get out of bed, like one of those days where it's just really difficult to do almost anything. I don't know that I would... <sighs> I think this is something that I probably still need to work on myself because what I do tend to do, <clears throat> which isn't the right way around it, is I do sort of shut myself off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not really a coping mechanism. Or it's not really a, it's really a skill that I use for it. It's something that I probably still do need to work on a little bit. But because I'm generally more proactive than reactive, it's, I don't often get those bad days as much anymore. Mm. Um but, but when I do, it's kind of just, I've got a case of just, I've got to try and ride it out. I, I don't know. But I don't know. What skill, what skill would you two say that you think you would use in that situation? You know, I was just thinking, I, th- I feel like we talked about this really in our most recent episode about when it's sometimes you don't always need to use opposite action. I mean, of course, the skill, the, the sort of default answer, you're having trouble getting out of bed, use opposite action, right? Get out of bed anyway, force yourself. And... I think that's the case if getting out of bed is something that you consistently struggle with, then yeah, you want to practice opposite action. But as we talked about last week, sometimes you're having an off day. And if you can, if it's effective for you, if you're not going to lose your job because of it, if you're not going to lose any relationships because of it, like it's 
kind of knowing when it's okay to give yourself a break and just ride it out. And sometimes that actually is okay. Yeah, versus, what you yeah. Said, like, give, giving yourself a break. I think sometimes, and that's kind of how I feel about it. Sometimes I think when I, if I do get to that point, it's like, right, okay, like I need to do this. I need to shut myself off. I need to just rest and, and tell myself that it's okay to just, yeah, to switch off for a bit and, and wait for it to pass because it always does. It always does pass. It's yeah. just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. What about, I know you said we've been talking about like being proactive with skills and do you feel like there is a particular like skill that you have in mind when you are trying to be proactive or are there like specific things that you notice yourself doing to be proactive um, that might be helpful for other people? The, the only thing, the, the only thing that I know that I sort of consciously do sort of still do to remain proactive is just like being mindful mm-hmm. um, that that is probably the single biggest tool that I used for for that sort of thing so yeah uh, but like I said for me it, it's 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 really hard you know it's it's it is just like a mindset now rather than something that I have to think about it's just something now that's there in my head and uh, but yeah I do think I think probably mindfulness when it comes to being proactive um, yeah. or you know just taking time out to actually react so before you know without reacting to something I could typically fly off the handle sort of pre pre-diagnosis um, but learning to be able to just like take a step back and see the bigger picture and yeah, not to react straight away. Um, mm-hmm. A couple of things I'm thinking. First of all, it sounds like even learning what the criteria for BPD or EUPD was helped you increase mindfulness. Like, which I think is, it, it's so cool to hear it phrased like that. Like, okay, I know that a criteria of BPD is maybe impulsive behavior through intense urges right so now that I know that about myself I'm going to start noticing it when I do that and try to you know not react right away so that I mean wow that speaks to that speaks to the power of diagnosis um I think I think that's really important for listeners to hear and then the other thing I think too about you know being proactive like it also sounds like adding you know just just going back to seeing all of your nature photos, right? And kind of getting out into nature and doing things you enjoy, like the ABC please skills. I mean, I would be lost. I would be lost without my accumulating positives and sort of purposely, um, you know, doing activities that I know make me happy. So it's kind of like being proactive in the moment rather than reactive, but then also being proactive in general, you know, kind of getting ahead of those more negative emotional experiences by increasing the positives. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the nature for me is a, is a big, is a big, big um, positive and a big part of my life that um, without, you know, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to build, build those positives, but um, it's, I don't know what it is either. It's just, just being outside. It's just doing the fresh air, the exercise, it goes without saying it's obviously good for physical and mental health but I like see it I like the photography aspect of it as well like going out and actually trying to trying to get the right shot and stuff like that so um yeah I think someone someone once told me that like photography is like a metaphor for life and it was something like um you've got to focus on what's right in front of you you know if it doesn't work out you've got to take another shot develop from the negatives mm. like um, <laughs> and that's always something that's like stuck I in there as well yeah yeah it's good so um yeah we sort of tend to think about that sort of thing as well when I get the camera out which is good I know I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation I'm so grateful that you joined us today Chris I feel like Thank you. our listeners are going to be are going to learn so much about like and feel so validated by you sharing your experiences and feel so helped um, by you talking a little bit about like what you've actually done to become more skillful, more effective and have continued to build that life worth living. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on here today. We've thank really- Thank you for having me. Yeah.
Yeah, it's I. Been, it's been wonderful. Thank you. I echo everything Molly said and just want to add that we both learned a lot today too and 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 are really grateful for this opportunity as as I said it's you know the social media world is kind of new to us and it's something we find really intriguing and also just you know being able to talk some, to someone who's been through DBT and is using it as a second language I mean if that doesn't, if that doesn't um, increase my motivation as a therapist, I, mm -hmm. I don't know what does. So I really I appreciate the, that too. The second language thing, I think is something that I'm going to take away from this that's going to be really important for me in uh, explaining to other people how much better and how much easier life can be once you've put the work in and you've learned that second language. That's so well said. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening. So until next episode, stay skillful, everyone. Mm -hmm.